like in heaven, as, uh, as the saints of God are singing praise to God with this reality in their hearts and minds that Christ is theirs uh, forevermore. What joy that must bring the Father um, to look down and see a people that He has redeemed to Himself. Um, and what a joy it is for us to be able to take part in the redeemed who get to sing that song. Uh, Mark chapter 1, again, is where we're going to be, and a lot of kids just went downstairs. I slightly worried for the workers down there what this is going to be like. Uh, we might have to remodel the basement when this is all said and done. Uh, but Mark chapter 1, and uh, I'm not going to read the passage again, but I do want to have a word of prayer in just a moment. And I know it's a lengthy passage, uh, but I, I do pray that, that as we go through this, that we would see how it does fit together so well, and uh, that we would see the work that Christ accomplished on this earth and the work that he has allowed us to partake in. Sometimes we, we think about the Christian life, and this is not the message. This is a precursor to the message. Sometimes we think about the Christian life, and we think that God has given us all these things that we have to do. Um, friend, let's, let's think of it in a right way that God has allowed us to take part in all these things that he has called us to do. It's not a have-to. It's something that we get to participate in with him as the gospel continues to go forth. And as Christ lived uh, with such a humble attitude, that's, again, what we're called to live with as well. And so let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into our time in the Word of God together. God, we are grateful again for your love for us. We're grateful, God, for the gift of your Word and for the gift of your Spirit. And I pray this morning that as we come to your Word, God, that you would do a great work in us. God, that we would in this snapshot of the life of Christ, get a glimpse of who our Savior is, and that it would cause us again to fall in love with Him as we understand that these great works that He did in Mark chapter 1 were simply pointing to the greatest work that He would do, which was to be the sacrifice for sins. And God, I pray this morning that, that those of us who have found hope in Christ, God, for those of us who are redeemed, that we would rejoice in this truth today. Christ is ours forevermore. But God, if there's any here today who have never trusted Christ, we do pray today that through your spirit and your word, you would draw them to yourself. They would see themselves as sinners who have a desperate need of a Savior, and they would understand that Jesus is the only one who can bring true salvation to their lives. Thank you again. We pray that you do a great work in us for your glory. We pray that, with the, uh, that you'd be with the children's classes downstairs, both the nursery and children's church. God, may you begin working in the hearts of our children even now that they would understand these life-changing truths of the gospel. Thank you for all that you do for us. Be with us now as we study your word together. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This next section in Mark's gospel really shows us much of what the rest of the gospel is going to look like. I've titled it, as you can see on the screens or in your notes, The Life of Christ, because the contents of the rest of Mark 1 really reveal to us the life that Christ lived in the rest of the Gospels. Last week we saw how Christ began to establish his authority, and in part today we're going to see how that establishing of authority continues. In Mark 1 we see that Christ sets an example for us in these remaining verses that we would do well to pay attention to. In fact, anytime Christ is spoken of, we would do well to pay attention to those things because it's life-changing truths that are being relayed to us through the gospel writers. And so today, as we continue through this chapter, my desire is that we would, be, that we, that we would see what Christ did and that we would examine our lives against his life to see where we can follow him 
more passionately. If you're familiar with this text, then you understand that in the details, there's a vagueness. We're told that Christ did a lot in Mark chapter 1, but we're not given detailed accounts on every healing or every miracle. But as we look at this today, we understand that it's pointing to something greater. And all that Christ did early on in the Gospels was establishing a groundwork for what he would do later on in the Gospels as he would sacrifice or be the sacrifice for sins on the cross. And so the life of Christ is one that we should seek to to model our lives after as we live in this world. The question for you as we start, when you were a kid, who did you want to be like? I can remember as a kid... um, There were many things and people that I wanted to do in my life, but one in particular was I would watch this show on TV land called Chips. Anybody remember Chips with Ponch and John? And uh, they were California Highway Patrol police officers, and they rode around on their motorcycles. And at that time, when I was really interested in that show, uh, my grandparents had an old Kawasaki Bayou four-wheeler, two-wheel drive, but it was you had to shift it, but it was clutchless. So us kids could drive that at a very early age. And as a child, I remember driving around behind uh, my parents' house in the woods and then down across the road in my grandfather's field, and you wouldn't believe how many bad guys I pulled over and arrested, how many crimes I solved, and I got all this great work as like a 10-year-old boy riding around on a red Kawasaki four-wheeler. Many days I spent living out those episodes that I watched on TV. And you know what the reality was? As that was my dream back then to become a California Highway Patrol policeman, uh, that dream never became a reality. And isn't that true for many of our childhood dreams? Whether it was being a cowboy or a detective or a doctor or whatever, most of our childhood dreams never become a reality. Uh, They're a reality in our hearts and in our minds in the moment, but when we grow up and we get slapped in the face with real life, we realize that those things never really come to be. Well, as we look to the life of Christ today, as we often model our lives after other people when we're children, Christ has given us the perfect example to model our lives after in the Word of God. And as we seek to emulate Him, as we seek to follow Him with our lives, the reality is the life of Christ does not have to be some dream that we never attain, but it's a life that we can participate in each and every day. And so as we look to the life of Christ today, my prayer is that we would seek to model our lives after His For in reality, this is the best life that we can live. Before we get too far into this, you might be saying in your mind, Dan, are you saying that I can do everything that Christ did? No, I'm not. I'm not. But I am saying that we can live with the Spirit of Christ. That we can serve with the Spirit that He had, with the meekness and and love and compassion that He showed. That we can live not for our own glory, but for the glory of another. That we can model our lives after Christ so that our lives will bring glory to the God just as His life brought glory to the Father. And so this morning, while sometimes we cast aside these ideas in our mind of living like Christ because we say the world is too too wicked, or our own flesh desires too many sinful things at times. We could never live this life. We must remember what Peter tells us in 2 Peter 2, in the first chapter there, that God has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. And this life that God has called us to live is also a life that God enables us to live 
when we yield ourselves to the Spirit and to the Word. So I pray this morning that we would not give ourselves excuses and say, well, I can't live the life of Christ or I won't live the life of Christ because of X, Y, and Z. But I pray that instead we would yield ourselves to the Spirit of God and to the Word of God so that we could live the life of Christ in the world that He has called us to. Sometimes in our minds we think, well, I wish I grew up in a different era or a different time. Friend, do you realize today that God has placed you where you are for a reason? And if you're a child of God, then God has a purpose for your life right here and right now. You didn't need to grow up back in the 60s or the 40s or the 1800s. God wants you where you are right now, and you can serve Him where you are right now, and you can live for the glory of Him right here and right now as we submit ourselves to the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And so I pray that that would be our heart's desire this morning, and I pray that we would understand that that's exactly what Christ did in Mark chapter 1. Thinking back, who was it that drove Christ into the wilderness? It was the Spirit of God. Thinking back, how did Christ overcome the temptations in the wilderness? Through the word of God. And so whatever we face in this life, friends, God has given us what we need to overcome those things through his spirit and through his word. And we're going to see a third element of that this morning, and that's prayer. I'm giving it away. But we see that in, in this chapter, all three of these things were, were crucial in the life of Christ. And I pray that we would understand how crucial they need to be in our lives as well. And so the big idea this morning is this. The life of Christ is to be the life we live. Though we will never do this in perfection on this side of eternity, we should be growing in it progressively until we see him face to face. We will never live the life of Christ in perfection, but we should be growing in it progressively until the day that he calls us home. And what is the term that we use that describes that progressive day by day growing in the life of Christ? It's none other than the, none other than the term sanctification. That God is taking us on a journey. As we saw last week when Jesus called the disciples, what did he say? I will make you to become fishers of men. It was a journey that God was going to take them on through Christ. And that's the same journey that we are on today. That we would live the life of Christ in the world that he has left us in. So we're going to step through this passage today and see three things. The first point is really walking through the whole of of verses 21 through 45 and seeing the ability of Christ. The second part is going to be seeing the attitude of Christ in these things that he did. And then the final thing is going to, is going to be that we see the sustaining power of Christ uh, in, in parts of this story. So I pray this morning that we would be helped as we go through the Word of God together. I'm not going to read it because we've already done so, but I do want to, as I said, walk through it as we see the ability of Christ in verses 21 through 45. Certainly as we look to passages like this, we understand that Christ could do anything. But in the Gospels, we're given actual accounts of what he did. If we were just given this blanket statement that Jesus did things, uh, it would be harder for us to picture in, our, picture in our mind what those things were. We could get off on rabbit trails thinking of things that, that weren't important or thinking of things that Christ didn't actually do. But the gospel writers give us detailed accounts uh, of what Christ did while he was on this earth. I'm sorry, this thing is bugging me today. Um, um, and, and, and so as we go through passages like this, we see that, that Christ did many miracles, that he taught many great things, and all of this was done 
for the purpose of setting up what he would then go on and do in the future. These accounts often make us feel good as we think of Christ being kind to those who others were not kind to or treating with, those, uh, with love those who often were neglected or cast out. But friends, let us understand that the gospel message is to do more than just make us feel good. If all we do is read the accounts of Jesus in the Gospels and we say, man, Jesus was a really great guy, then we've missed the boat completely because all of these things are being done to point that he was the Messiah. And as we read them, we should be compelled by them. We should be compelled to understand the depth of who Jesus was, but we should also in some sense be compelled to follow after him with all of our hearts. And so as we move on from what we saw last week, where Jesus calls the first four disciples to himself, we then get into the meat of his ministry, and he ministered to individuals on a daily basis, doing things that blew people's minds. In verse 21, we see that they enter into Capernaum, and this would have been one of the home bases for Jesus' ministry. We know that Simon lived here, for the text reveals that to us, but it's also believed that James and John lived here as well, as they would have fished on the Sea of Galilee. And that city in that day would have been absolutely gorgeous. As you got up on a hillside and you looked over the Sea of Galilee, just an amazing picture of the glory of God in creation. And so Jesus kind of established his ministry here as he called his first four disciples to himself. And we see that when they were in Capernaum, he entered into the Sabbath day, or into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he began to teach the people. Now that's such a simple statement. But have you ever wondered, what did Jesus teach when he went into the synagogue? What was it that Jesus proclaimed forth as he sat with those devout Jewish people, as he sat in front of people who had heard teaching from the scribes for all of their lives? What did Jesus teach to them? Well, we understand whatever it was, it blew them away. They were blown away by the message. They were blown away by the authority that he spoke with. I, in in my mind, seem to think that, that Jesus was continuing to preach the gospel, which was repent and believe the gospel. Why? For the kingdom of God is at hand. And this message would have ruffled their feathers, as we said a couple weeks ago, but it was what they needed to hear. So Christ went and he preached. He preached uh, through, through what God would have him to preach to make manifest who Jesus was. He was revealing to those people in that day that he was the Savior of the world, even though they missed it time and time again. As the story seems to go on, um, we see that while Jesus was teaching, or shortly after he was teaching, in verses 23 through 28, that there came to him, or was brought to him, a man with an unclean spirit. Now, this idea of an unclean spirit is just a nice way of saying that he was demon-possessed. The man had something within him that was, that was causing his body to act and react in ways that were not normal. That there were things going on in this man's body that he could not control and that other people could not control uh, him as well. Uh, we see that this man was causing problems. And if you read through the Gospels, this was a common occurrence in the life of Christ where people would be burdened down or laden down with a demon inside of them and they would be acting in a way that was dangerous to them but also dangerous to those around them. And so as Jesus gets done teaching and as he's confronted with this demon-possessed man, we see that this man was angry. He was divisive. He was confrontational. 
This man was crying out, or the demon within this man was crying out, let us alone. He says, what have we to do with thee? He says, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. It's interesting that while the masses didn't understand who Jesus was, the demon inside this man knew exactly who Jesus was. And as this man cried out, leave me alone, he did that because he understood the authority that Jesus had. He understood the ability that Jesus had. He understood that Jesus was indeed God in the flesh. And as we mentioned a few weeks ago, just because they had a knowledge didn't mean they wanted to submit to that knowledge. And yet, what do we see in the gospel accounts time and time again? That even though they didn't want to submit to the authority of Jesus, ultimately, what did they do? They had to. They had to submit to his authority because he was indeed God in the flesh. And so in verse 25, we see that Jesus rebukes the spirit. He tells him to hold his peace and he commands the spirit to come out of that man in that moment. And verse 26 reveals to us that this is exactly what happens. And in a violent display of power of the enemy being overcome by the power of God, the spirit comes forth from this man, tearing him and he's crying with a loud voice. The word torn there means to display a type of a seizure. The ESV uses the word that he convulses to show the violent nature of what took place when this spirit was called forth from this man. And so if we think sometimes that the life and ministry of Jesus was just this neat and cute little story that we read about in our children's storybook Bibles, understand that that is not the case at all. That when Jesus confronted this man There were real things that were happening. Why? Because it was a real demon within him. In verses 28, uh, we see that, I'm sorry, verse 27, we see that when the people saw it, they were amazed. They began to question what was going on. Who is this Jesus? What doctrine is it that he's teaching? What authority does he have that he has the ability to even call out demon spirits from within human beings. Then in verse 28, we're told that at this point, the fame of Jesus began to spread. Found it interesting that that they used that word fame. And it wasn't necessarily the name of Jesus that began to spread, but it was the things that Jesus did that people began to talk about. It's interesting that as curious as people were about the things that Jesus did, how many of them actually missed the boat in understanding who Jesus was? Many. Many flocked to Jesus because of the miracles that he could perform. But many of those same people missed the boat in understanding that this Jesus was indeed the Savior of the world. And we understand that this is going to pose problems down the road. We understand that when the disciples were getting excited about the crowds that were flocking to Jesus, Jesus oftentimes said, yeah, that's not what I'm here for. And in fact, that takes place even in the passage that we're studying today. But all of this is is talking about the ability that Christ had. As the passage continues in verses 29 through 39, we, we get sort of a snapshot into the day of the life of Christ. As they leave the synagogue, we know that they went then went to Simon Peter's house, and when they got there, or while they were on their way there, they found out that Jesus that that Peter's mother in law was sick. Now we could insert all sorts of mother in law jokes here, but we won't do that today because that's not our purpose. If you, if you noticed in our reading, the King James uses that word anon, and that word simply means immediately. And so when they were making their way to Peter's house, 
Somebody came to where they were and they said, Hey, Peter, your mother-in-law is sick. Your mother-in-law is sick. And I'm sure that in their minds they were thinking, Well, we just saw Jesus do some pretty cool things in the temple. I wonder what he can do for Peter's mother-in-law. The conversation is not detailed for us. But verse 31 tells us that when they walk in, that Jesus takes her by the hand. Matthew says he just touches her by the hand and he lifts her up. And immediately she was healed. And so we've already seen that Jesus had great authority in his teaching. We've, we've seen how Jesus has great authority over the demon-possessed man or the evil spirits in the world. And now we see that Jesus has authority even over the sicknesses that people were dealing with. Now in our day and age, a fever, not really that big of a deal. But think back then how many people died at a young age because of sicknesses that were very, very minor. And so I'm sure the house was overjoyed at at what Jesus had done here, that Peter's mother-in-law was now healed. And what does she do when she's healed? She sits at the feet of Jesus, right? No, she gets up and she serves. And what a testimony that is to a life that's changed by Jesus. Friends, when, when we are healed by Jesus, not in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense, understand that we are not healed to simply sit and take in all that Jesus says and never do anything with it, but we're called to then go out and serve in the way that Jesus has called us to serve. Well, if that wasn't as exciting enough for you, in verse 32, we see that Jesus' day wasn't over. And while they were at Peter's house, we see that they started to bring people to Jesus by the droves who were diseased and possessed. And as I was studying for this, I just imagined what that scene must have looked like in my mind. Imagine Jesus sitting there talking with Peter's family. Some of the disciples were around and then all of a sudden they get a knock on the door and somebody opens the door and there's this whole line of people that had problems and issues and ailments and and things that they knew that Jesus could take care of. And all of these people that were at Peter's door in the moment were people that everybody else had written off, but they knew they could find friendship in Jesus. And isn't that the story of the gospel? That when the world has written everybody else off, when the world has written even us off at times, we know that there is one who can save us, who can change our lives, and that's the scene that was taking place here. In verse 33, Mark describes for us that the whole city was at the door. Now, what does that mean? Well, in that day, Capernaum would have been a a, a city that held about 1,500 people. And you say, well, that's not many people. Okay, well, let's get 1,500 people lined up outside your door this afternoon and see what it looks like. These people recognized there was something crazy about this man named Jesus. There was something unusual about this man named Jesus. And the whole city came to see what Jesus was going to do. And verse 34 tells us that Jesus saw the people and he turns them away, right? No. He healed them. Jesus took compassion or had compassion on every one of these individuals, the ones who were demon-possessed, the ones who were sick with diverse diseases. He took time to minister to each of them. And I honestly don't think it was a blanket healing where Jesus spoke from a window and said, Be healed! I think it was an individual encounter that he had with every one of these people to show his individual care and concern for the ones that were in front of him on that day. And so Jesus heals them. All who came by faith that Jesus could do it were healed of the things that plagued them. 
And friend, understand this, as we think of this in a physical way, understand this is also true in a spiritual way. All who come to Christ by faith, believing that he is the savior of the world in repentance and confessing their sins will be healed, spiritually speaking. He will never turn anyone away who comes to him by faith. In verses 35 through 39, we see that night begins to fall and we see a picture of Jesus's humanity here and that he was weary and he went to bed. But before the sun broke on the following day, we see that Jesus gets up early in the morning and he goes to pray. Now, Peter and those that were with him follow him and when they find where Jesus is, they say, Jesus, don't you understand that everyone is looking for you? And we can assume by that term, everyone, Peter's meaning that everyone in the city has come back because they want to see what thing Jesus is going to do next. And in this moment where Peter and the disciples were saying to themselves, it's happening. The Messiah is here. We're going to set up a kingdom. We're going to go to war. We're going to overthrow Rome. And when Peter says, everyone's here, Jesus, they're prepared to see you. What does Jesus say? Pack it up, boys. We're going to move on. We're going to go to another city. Why? So that I can preach and so that I can continue to do the work that my Father has called me to do. You see, Jesus didn't come to amass a crowd of people to himself. He came to do the work of the Father. He came to do the work of the Father. In, in the early portions of the ministry, it was to preach and teach with the side note of healing. Healing was not the primary thing that Jesus came to do. Certainly, it did prove that he had the authority from God the Father, but the primary thing that Jesus came to do was to prove to the world that he was the Savior, and he did that through his preaching and teaching. Well, as they pack things up and as they get out of, out of where uh, the crowds were, we see that Jesus is then confronted in verses 40 through 45 with another illness. And this time it was with a leper. And as they went on their way, this leper came beseeching him and kneeling down and in faith asking to be healed of Jesus if Jesus would do it. To be a leper would have meant that you carried around a death sentence. That everywhere you went, you cried the words, unclean that you wore clothes that would have been tattered and torn and dirty, that, that you would have kept your hair in a disheveled manner so people, when they looked at you from afar, they could understand that there was something wrong with you and that they should not come near you. In fact, lepers weren't allowed to live in the normal community. They had to live in a leprous community with people who were like them, with people who carried around that very same death sentence. They were removed from family life. They were removed from social life. They were even removed from spiritual worship. And if you want to know more about leprosy, go and read Leviticus 13 and 14. And you'll get a detailed understanding of how, how horrible this disease was. But as Jesus is walking along, we see that this leper understood that there was something different about Jesus. And when the rest of the lepers, if there were any, stayed behind... This man knew with all his heart that if I have a chance of being restored to my family and in my community, and if I have a chance of being able to participate in worship again, then I have to get to Jesus. Now, this man could have gotten in serious trouble for doing what he did, but he was willing to take the risk because he believed that Jesus could do the miracle. 
And so he makes his way to where Jesus does. And I imagine he keeps his distance in some form, in some fashion. And he looks at Jesus and he says, if you will. He doesn't say if you could, but if you will, would you heal me? The Bible tells us that Jesus had compassion on this man. And if Mark stopped there, Jesus would have already gone further than most people would have gone. But he doesn't stop there. Jesus reaches out and touches this man who likely had not felt the touch of another non-leprous human being since his diagnosis. And in touching this man, Jesus would have made himself ceremonially unclean, but Jesus didn't care about that. Why? Because he cared so deeply for this individual. And as he looks at this man who is covered with leprosy, whose skin is, is peeling off of his body, whose hair has turned white, who everyone else has avoided, Jesus looks at him and has compassion on him. And he reaches out and touches him. And he says these words, I will be thou clean. And in the display of, of Jesus' compassion towards this leprous man, the Bible says that immediately the man was healed from his leprosy. Immediately. As Jesus speaks with this man, he says, I I want you to go and show yourself to the priests. And I don't, I want you to, to pay as an offering what Moses prescribed in the law, but I don't want you to say a word to any other person. Come on, Jesus right? Like, like, what are we doing here? Everybody knows that I had leprosy. Everybody knows that I've been outside Capernaum or, or the city for, for many, many years probably at this point. Everybody knows that, that there was something in my life that was keeping me secluded into myself. And now you're telling me not to tell anyone how I got cleansed? What are you talking about here? We know that this man did not obey the words of Christ. But in verse number 45, the Bible says, But he went out and began to publish it much, and to blaze abroad the matter, insomuch that Jesus could no more openly enter into the city, but was without in a desert place, and they came to him from every quarter. Now there's a lot of speculation as to why Jesus said, don't tell anybody. But before we get into that, I want to highlight one thing. Isn't it interesting that Jesus told this man not to go and tell anyone, and he went? And at the very same time, Jesus has told us to go and tell everyone, and oftentimes we don't. You see, this man understood that Jesus impacted his life in such a way that he could not keep it contained within himself. I love the terminology there, that he blazed abroad. That that doesn't mean that he told one or two people. He was posting flyers on the telephone poles. He, He had on the milk cartons. It was not missing people. It was his face that said, look at me. I've been made whole. He wanted everyone to know the difference that Jesus had made in his life. And church family, can I ask you today, has Jesus made a difference in your life? And can I ask us, are we blazing abroad this matter to the world that we have found the Savior? And so there's question as to why Jesus told this man not to say anything. And and as I said, there's much speculation. Some say that Jesus told this man not to say anything because it's like the saying in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, cast not your pearls before swine. That this man might have gone to people and proclaimed a truth that people were not interested in or would have ignored or would have misused. And so Jesus, in all his wisdom and knowledge, said, don't go tell anyone because you're not going to do any kingdom good by by making this matter known. Uh, Some say that this was a test of obedience. 
that Jesus said, I, I, I want you to be a follower of mine, but I don't want you to say anything. And Jesus was testing to see how loyal this man would be. Some speculate that this was, was told to this man because of his maturity level. And that Jesus knew that in him sharing the details, he wouldn't have done it justice and he would have had people confused in the matter of who Jesus was. Some say that Jesus was saving this man from unneeded persecution. If you think about that day for, for Jesus to come on the scene and to begin healing people, that would have been a big deal. You think of the story in John where the, the, the boy who was blind from his birth is healed and they bring in everybody and begin questioning him. And the parents in that story say, don't ask us, go ask him. And why did they respond that way? Because them identifying with Jesus in that moment would have caused them to be removed from the temple worship. So it could have been a matter of persecution. Maybe some speculate that, that the world just wasn't ready to hear the news that this man was describing. But whatever the reason was, and I'm not going to give you a conclusive answer on that, because the Bible doesn't give us a conclusive answer on that. Whatever the reason was, we understand that Jesus had a reason. And while we applaud in some regards this man doing what Jesus told him not to do, we understand that it wasn't a good thing for whatever reason. And so as we think through the story, while we don't understand what was going on here, we know that Jesus did. We also know that Jesus wasn't ready for the type of following that this was going to get him. And because this man went and did what he did, Mark tells us that, the, that Jesus was then forced into the desert. He was forced away from everybody else, not in the city, city centers any longer, but he was forced away from everybody else, and yet we still see the people came and found him. And as we walk through these verses, and I know that took uh, some time, and the next couple points are, are much shorter, understand that this is Jesus. In verses 21 through 45, this is a snapshot of the life that he lived. And these are the things that we are going to see over and over and over again in the Gospel of Mark. And so I didn't want to take a long time on every one of these things, but I wanted to lump them together for us to just understand what's coming down the road. And as this was the Jesus that lived back then, friends, understand that this is still the Jesus that lives today. That he is the miracle worker. That he is the one with all authority. That he is the one who can do things that blow our mind. And as these people were excited about Jesus back then, I must ask us today, are we excited about this Jesus? Are you excited about him? Or do you just simply read about him as a historical figure that did great works, and today he doesn't really have much activity? Friends, the activity of Christ today is a very real thing. He is working. He is serving. And in fact, he's serving us even to this day as, as we read about him in the word of God. But all these things point us to the ability of Christ with the authority that he had over, or in teaching and over the demons and over sicknesses. And that leads us to our second point this morning, which is the attitude of Christ. The ability of Christ and then the attitude of Christ. From verses 21 through 45, how many times do we see Jesus promoting himself in an unrighteous way? Never. Never once does he say, look at me. Look at what I can do. Look at the things that I can accomplish. Take notice of who I am. In fact, the exact opposite is done. 
When the crowds are coming and Peter says, hey, everyone's here. Jesus says, we got to go. When he heals the leper and, and this man wants to tell everybody, Jesus says, don't tell a soul. Don't tell a soul. And it points us to this reality that Jesus lived with a humble attitude. He did not do what he did for show, but he did it in meekness. He never did what he did for himself, but he did what he did for others. And ultimately, he did what he did for the glory of God. And if we have missed the boat as we've read the scriptures, this is to be the life that we live each and every day. Not for us, but for him. This is what Paul wrote about in Philippians 2, 6 through 8, who being in the form of God, speaking about Jesus, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And so church, understand this. When Jesus was on this earth, he was not a glory seeker. He wasn't. He never did it for himself. He did it for the Father. And I wonder in our lives, can we say the same about us? When we don't get the recognition that we feel we deserve, what's our response? When we know we should do something anonymously, but instead we do it publicly, what is our motivation? You see, the attitude of Christ was to serve in meekness and humility, not pointing at himself, but ultimately pointing to the glory of God as God made the person of Jesus Christ known on this earth. Jesus was not a glory seeker, and it's seen in the attitude that he lived with. It reminded me of the passage in John 6, and verses 22 through 35, and Jesus had just done a great miracle And in verse 22, the the Bible picks up and says, The day following, when the people which stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was none other boat there, save uh, that one wherewith, uh, wherein to his disciples were entered, and that Jesus went not with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples were gone away alone. Howbeit there came other boats from Tiberias, nigh unto the place where they did eat bread, after the Lord had given thanks." When the people saw, therefore, that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples, they also took shipping, I like that word, they took shipping, and came to Capernaum seeking for Jesus. And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat the loaves and were filled. Labor not for that meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of God shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. They said unto him, What shall we do, that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that you believe on him who hath sent, whom he hath sent. They said therefore unto him, What sign showest thou then, that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? Verse 31 says, Our fathers did eat manna in the desert, and it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father which gaveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. And they said unto him, Lord, evermore give us of this bread. And Jesus saith unto them, I am the bread of life. And he that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. 
And so Jesus just got done feeding them, and he goes across the sea, and the crowd finds him, and they said, hey, Jesus, where'd you go? How'd you get here? We want to follow you. And what does Jesus say? You don't want to follow me. You only want what I can do for you. Not in a spiritual sense, but in a physical sense. And as Jesus was talking with them, he then begins to describe to him who he is. And their response is, well, how do we know? How can we do these works? And Jesus said, the Father has sent me as the bread of life. And Jesus goes on from this moment to talk about if they're not willing to eat the bread and drink the blood, then they're none of his. And do you know what happens as that chapter comes to an end? or as we, as we go further on down the road in that chapter, the Bible says in verse 66 that many went away from following him in that moment. And you know what Jesus then does? He turns to his disciples and he says these words, will you go away also? Will you go away also? Now from a, a church building standpoint, Jesus is making all the wrong moves. He's doing all the wrong things. Instead of applauding people for coming to him for whatever reason that drew them, Jesus is saying, you can't handle being with me if you're not willing to eat the bread and drink of the blood. And when his own disciples were seeing this, they were amazed oftentimes that Jesus was causing the crowds to go away. But I think what should have amazed them even more was that Jesus turned to them and says these very words, will you go away also? You see, Jesus was never in it for himself. He was never in it to make a name for himself. He was never in it to have a following. He was never in it to amass a crowd. He was never in it to to have people say, wow, look at all Jesus is doing here and now. He was in it to point to what he was going to do, which was to die on the cross to be the savior of the world. And so his attitude was meekness. His attitude was humility. His attitude was not to bring attention to himself. And that's why in our text, when Jesus comes or when Jesus wakes up early and goes to pray and Peter and the others find him, this is the exact reason why Jesus says in, to, in response to what Peter says, we've got to go. We've got to leave this place because I have other things to do than to just stay here and, and build a following for myself from these people. And so the attitude of Christ was one of humility. The attitude of Christ was one of meekness. The attitude of Christ was one where his desire was to see God get the glory. I'm often reminded of this when I see churches plant churches out of themselves. That when a church reaches a certain size, and honestly, this is something I desire and pray that we can do one day. That when we get to a place where we are are at the point of, of being too big for what we have here, that we say, okay, time to start another church. Why? Because we're not into kingdom building, right? Would I love to see a thousand people worship in this place? Certainly, but why not start another church in another community that can have a specific outreach for that group of people? You see, and that's the heart that Jesus was serving with here. He wasn't saying it's all about me. He's saying uh, we need to keep going so that the, the Father can be glorified in all these places. Jesus knew that he had a place to go to, to preach the truth, and he didn't want the crowds to hinder him from getting there. And so he served with an attitude of meekness. And I would ask us this morning, do we serve with that attitude? The final thing we see today is the sustaining power of Christ. And so we've seen the ability of Christ, we've seen the attitude of Christ, and now we see the sustaining power of Christ. I mentioned this earlier, but if we were to back up in Mark 1 and remember the temptation of Christ, we stated that 
He refuted the temptations of the enemy by submitting himself to the Spirit of God and to the Word of God. Well, here in this account, as Christ's life was extremely busy, it seems that Christ knew that there was another element of this sustaining power, and it involved his relationship with his Father. And so the Bible tells us in verse 35 that in the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place, and there he, what? He prayed. Now this is Jesus. This is God in the flesh. This is the one who who just performed miracle after miracle, that, that he just taught the people with great authority that blew their minds. And what is Jesus doing? In his exhausted state, he's waking up, early before the sun rose and he says i've got to spend time with my father i've got to spend time in communion with the one who sent me to the world you see the ability that christ had to do these great works was tied to this idea of doing the works that the father had sent him to do and the humility that christ had in doing these works was directly tied to the one that he was in submission to and so it makes perfect sense that as Jesus continued in his ministry, that he would daily commune with the Father, bathing in prayer the events of the day, seeking wisdom from on high, and this is exactly what Mark records for us. And so what's the secret behind Jesus' ministry? He prayed. He prayed. I love how J.C. Ryle uh, speaks on this passage and passages that surround it. He says this, We shall find the same thing often recorded of our Lord in the gospel history. When he was baptized, we're told that he was praying in Luke 3.21. When he was transfigured, we're told that as he prayed, the fashion of his face was altered in Luke 9.29. Before he chose the twelve apostles, we're told that he continued all night in prayer to God in Luke 6.12. When all men spoke well of him and would fain have made him a king, we're told that he went up into a mountain apart to pray in Matthew 14.23. When he was tempted in the garden of Gethsemane, he said, sit ye here while I pray in Mark 14.32. In short, our Lord prayed always, and he did not faint. Sinless as he was, he set us an example of diligent communion with the Father. His Godhead did not render him uh, independent of the use of all means as a man, but his very perfection was a perfection kept up through the exercise of prayer. He goes on to say about people who profess to be Christians but don't pray, to be prayerless is to be Christless, godless, and on a high road to destruction. Is prayer the sustaining power in your life? Think about it for a moment. In the things that you face, in the battles that you go up against, in the burdens that weigh you down, in the stresses that never seem to leave, is prayer an element that you run to to find comfort and direction and guidance. Certainly, that's what Christ did. He relied on the Spirit of God. He followed the Spirit into the wilderness. He relied on the Word of God to overcome the temptations that he faced. But then we see here that his sustaining power was found in his relationship with his Father. This is why Paul tells us to pray without ceasing. Why? Because prayer is a vital part of the life of believers. And where can we look to to find the greatest example of that? We look to the person of Jesus Christ. And if the Father spent time in communion with his Father in heaven, friends, how much more important is it for us to spend time in communion with our Father in heaven? Christ understood the daily importance of devotion and communion, and it's seen in the way that he faced the things that he faced in this life. 
This was indeed his sustaining power. This was the thing that he knew that he needed to do to make it through the day. And we see that God worked in his life through prayer. Because in this moment where many would have been tempted to say, let's set up shop here and just have the crowd follow us and have a party for all the things that I've done. When faced with that temptation, what does Jesus say? We've got to keep going. Because I've come to do the will and the work of my Father. I've come to do the will and the work of my Father. And so the ability of Christ is that he has authority over everything. And we're going to see that played out through the rest of Mark's gospel. The attitude of Christ is that he did all that he did, not for himself, but for the glory of God. And the sustaining power of Christ is that he devoted himself to the Father in prayer. And as we think through this passage, we've done a great deal of explanation, but I want to take a few minutes and talk about this idea of application when it comes to these three things. And so first off this morning, how are we using the abilities that God has given us? God sent Jesus into the world and gave him all power over sickness and disease. He gave him an authority like no other when it came to preaching and teaching. And what did Jesus use that that ability for? To point people to the one who had sent him. He wasn't about himself. He was seeking the glory of the Father. And so how are we using the abilities that God has given us? In love, we see that Christ served the masses and particularly those who everyone else had cast out with compassion. He gets down to where they are identifying with them. I read something this week that said the healing miracles of Jesus are really sacraments of forgiveness. What does that mean? It means they're pictures of the ultimate forgiveness that Christ would bring about through his death, burial, and resurrection. And so when he knelt down and he touched that leper, ultimately that was a picture of him kneeling down and saving your sinful soul from hell. I wonder, do we use the abilities that God has given us to serve people in the way that Christ served? Are we using the abilities that God has given us for the sake of the kingdom or for the sake of our kingdom? Are we doing things that are only good for ourselves to make a name for us? Or is our desire to promote the name of the one who has saved us from our sins? You see, Jesus, as he walked this earth, he never was in it for himself. He was always in it for the glory of the Father. It's my prayer today that Northside would be a church that that is not so consumed with us that we leave Jesus behind in the process. You see, many churches are filled with people on Sunday mornings, but there's no no God-glorifying activity that's going on in that place because the people in the church, and oftentimes the pastors in the church, have become so glory-seeking that they've robbed God of what he deserves. Friends, may that not be our lives. May we do all that we do for the glory of the one who deserves it. And so I would ask you today, how are you using the abilities that God has given you? How are we ministering to those in our church body who have desperate needs? How are we ministering to those in the community who have desperate needs? May we seek to live the life of Christ. So how are we using our abilities? The second takeaway or application is, what about the attitudes that we have? Are we serving and looking good, but in reality producing no fruit? 
I was convicted of this this week. I, I listened to my brothers preach. It's, it's actually a great privilege to get to hear um, them preach almost every week. And I was listening to my younger brother. He's preaching through the Gospel of Matthew. I think he's in Matthew 21. And he was preaching about how Jesus cleansed the temple. And then as they left, um, they, they went to sleep. They woke up the next morning. And off in the distance, Jesus saw a fig tree. He saw that fig tree. And it wasn't the time of year when figs were supposed to, or fig trees were supposed to be bearing fruit. And on that tree was leaves, which when a fig tree produces leaves, it also produces the fruit at the very same time. When Jesus saw that fig tree with leaves from a distance, now obviously he knew this, but he did it for an example to his followers, he walked up to that fig tree, likely hoping to pull some fruit from it, and when he got there, what was there? Nothing. The Bible says that Jesus cursed that fig tree, and what happened? It died instantly. As I was thinking about that passage, and I was thinking about, this ties into what we just talked about as well, but I was thinking about the lives that we live. How often are we a fig tree that has leaves but no fruit? What do I, what do I mean by that? Who's, who puts on their Sunday best when they're coming through those back doors? We all do. Yeah, how many times do we do that and there is absolutely no fruit of the gospel growing in our lives? Friends, that's, that's not the type of people Jesus desires us to be. And so as Christ walked on this earth, we understand that his attitude was not about him. His attitude was not about himself. His attitude was not to, to make his name great, but his attitude was to make the name of the Father. And he served in meekness. He served in humility. He served in compassion and in love. And, and so as we take that example of the fig tree, I wonder how many of us, if we were a fig tree, and Jesus were to walk by us, how many of us would be cursed? I'm not saying that we will lose our salvation, but in a pictorial type of way, how many of us have all the leaves, we make it look really, really good, but we're actually bearing no fruit? That one was rough. I'm sorry, I'm getting a lot of looks right now. The final thing, is what are we looking to for our sustaining power? I love how simple the, simply the passage puts it. That Jesus got up in the morning before the sun had broke and he spent time with his Father in prayer. How many of us would say that we're guilty of going through, I'll just use the word some, some of our days without actually depending on the Father like Jesus did in this passage. A few of you are honest. Hopefully the rest of you are honest in your hearts. It's a sad reality in Christianity that we have Jesus as our Savior, but we willfully neglect the sustaining power of God in our lives because we don't actively participate in prayer. We pray for our food, right? But most of that, at times, if we're honest, is simply going through the motion of praying for our food. Why? Because that's what we're supposed to do. And we have these prayers nailed down that we can get them done in about 15.2 seconds before the mashed potatoes get cold. Prayer has to be more than that. It has to be more than that. 
And if we understand prayer like Jesus understands prayer, then we'll understand that it is truly a sustaining power in our lives, that God gives us wisdom through prayer, that he gives us strength through prayer, that he gives us direction through prayer. Jesus understood this, that he had to go to the Father. He had to rely on the Father if his life was going to be anything. And we must do the same. So what are we looking to for the sustaining power? Unfortunately, many people look to the applause of others for sustaining power. Do you know why Jesus didn't do that? Because he knew in a few years, the same people that were applauding him would also be shouting what? Crucify him. That's something that I've found in ministry, and I know uh, in talking to Bruce that he has found it as well, that if you only do what you do for the sake of the people that you're ministering to, to please them, then guess what often happens? Those people who were once most loyal to you are oftentimes the very ones who down the road will have nothing to do with you. And so we don't look to the applause of men as our sustaining power. We look to our Heavenly Father. How do we commune with Him? We commune with Him through His Word and through a time of prayer. And this is the life of Christ. His ability was unmatched. But God has called us to live in the way that Christ lived on this earth. We see that his attitude was one of meekness. And again, this is the attitude that we're called to live with on this earth. And his sustaining power was prayer. And this is to be our sustaining power as well as we live life on this earth. So the big idea that we began with again was this. The life of Christ is to be seen, is to be the life we live. Though we will never do it in perfection on this side of eternity, we should be growing in it progressively until we see him face to face. And so as we close this morning, I ask you one simple question. Are we progressively looking more like Christ? Are we progressively looking more like Christ? If you're a believer, then that's the life that God has called you to. And that's the life that God has enabled you to live. And I pray that that we would submit ourselves to the Spirit of God and to the Word of God so that we can do this very thing. If you're here today and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, understand that Christ that is described for us in Mark 1 is the Christ who will then go and die for us in the end of Mark's Gospel. If you have never trusted in this Christ as your Savior, understand this. Without Him, you will have no hope in this life or in the life to come. You can do all the best things, and in this life without Christ, you will still feel empty. But in Christ, there's a fulfilling that nothing else can bring. And as the Spirit opens the eyes of your heart to see your desperate need for a Savior, can I encourage you to run to Him? And the Bible says that he will save you from your sins. He is the only source of salvation. He is the only one that we look to for hope in this life and in the life to come. Just a moment, we're going to sing the song, Turn Your Eyes. And as we sing, the song is fitting for both believers and unbelievers. For believers daily, we must turn our eyes to Jesus.